Open your Bibles this morning to John chapter 1. So are you going? I heard everybody's going. I'm going. I can't wait to go. I mean, the guy is crazy, right? I mean, he's nuts. He's got to be. He dresses in like camel's hair. He's got this big leather belt. I heard, I even heard that he eats locusts. That's gross. But I mean, he's out there in the wilderness, so I guess there's not much else to eat, right? I hear he seasons them with some of that wild honey that's out there. So are you going? I'm going. It's, it's, everybody is going. I mean, all of Jerusalem, it seems like, is headed out there. People from all over Judea. It's nuts. I mean, he's, he's got to be crazy, right? Either he's crazy or he's a prophet. I don't know which it is. Either way, it's going to be quite a spectacle. I heard that even tax collectors and Roman soldiers have been responding to his messages. And it's not like he's some soft-spoken guy either. It's like, repent! I mean, that's kind of the whole crux of his sermons, but I'd say it's at least worth the trip out to the Jordan. What do you say? Shall we go? I think we should go. So let's get going. I mean, you know, it's amazing. I, I, I downloaded one of his sermons off of CamelTube the other day. That's, uh, let, you, you want to hear it? It's pretty crazy, man. It's in Matthew, I think, here. I know I told you to go to John, but just listen to this. He's, he's preaching here, and he says, he says uh, it says that when he saw some of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, brood of vipers. I mean, whoever talks to those guys that way, right? Brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Therefore, bear fruits worthy of repentance. And do not think to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I say to you that God is able to raise up children to Abraham from these stones. And even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Therefore, every good tree, which does not, every tree rather that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. I indeed baptize you with water unto repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fan is in his hand and he will thoroughly clean out his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, but he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. Man, that is like fire and brimstone, quite literally, yeah? That's John the Baptist. He was the voice of one crying out in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord. Did you recognize that? I think Malachi or was it Isaiah? One of them said that there would be a guy like that who was out there preaching before the coming of the Messiah. I wonder if he is the Messiah. Wouldn't that be awesome? In John chapter one, we read the story of John the Baptist's ministry as he came to proclaim who Jesus was, as he came to identify for the nation of Israel the Messiah that they had long awaited. Many, many people came out to see him. Many people came to hear his preaching and they responded like they had never responded before. Soldiers were saying, well, what, what must we do? And he says, well, don't, don't harass people, right? Don't threaten people. Tax collectors were like, well, what, what should we do? And he's like, don't collect more than what you're supposed to. Be, be fair with me. He was giving them the truth. But though he preached a baptism of repentance and baptism, 
Though he preached repentance unto salvation, that wasn't the main reason that he had come. The main reason that he had come was to identify the one who would be the Messiah, the Savior of Israel and indeed of the entire world. The uh, Pharisees, of course, were very troubled by this because they were the ones, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, they were the ones who controlled the religious power and authority of their day. And when they saw this upstart, this man who was not of them, beginning to wield so much influence and power, they began to wonder who he was and by what authority he did and said the things that he did and said. And so they sent representatives out into the wilderness, not to hear his preaching or to respond appropriately to it, but rather to, to check him out and to try to figure out whether or not he was legitimate in his ministry. In verse, let's see, verse uh, 19 of John chapter 1, we read that this is the testimony of John, speaking of John the Baptist. When the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, who are you? He confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. And they asked him, well, what then? Are you Elijah? And he said, I am not. Well, are you the prophet? And he answered, no. Then they said to him, well, well, who are you then? That we may give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? Now, you see, that's the interesting thing about John is he wasn't really interested in talking about himself. He was interested in talking about Jesus. But he answers their question and he says, I am the voice of one crying in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. Now, those who were sent from the Pharisees, and they asked him saying, why then do you baptize if you are not the Christ nor Elijah nor the prophet? In other words, they're saying, what, what gives you the right then to baptize people? And John answered them saying, I baptize with water, but there stands one among you whom you do not know. It is he who coming after me is preferred before me, whose sandal strap I am not worthy to loose. These things were done in Bathabra, beyond the Jordan, where John was baptizing. It's interesting to me that even when John answers questions about himself, he answers them based upon his relationship to Jesus. Amen? Who are you to share the gospel? Who are you to preach? Who are you to tell other people about Jesus or to evangelize? Your answer, I'm just a person who was once lost, but now I'm found. I'm just a person who used to be lost in sin, walking in darkness, giving way to every carnal desire of my flesh, and I am now a person who has been redeemed by the precious blood of Jesus Christ, whose sins have been forgiven, and who has been given the blessing and the gift of eternal life. You want some of what I got? It's free, right? You want some? John, the next day, verse 29 tells us, saw Jesus coming toward him. And he said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, After me comes a man who is preferred before me, for he was before me. Now this is interesting, because John was about six months older than Jesus. 
So if John was six months older than Jesus, how could Jesus have been before John? Unless Jesus existed before he was born. Amen? And he did exist before he was born. We have that testimony in John chapter 1, verse 1, where we read, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Did you notice it did not say, and the Word was a God? That article, a, is not present in the original language. There's a word there that certain sects like to put in there to diminish the divinity of Jesus Christ. But the gospel record stands clearly in this place. And it does not say that Jesus was a God. It doesn't even simply say that Jesus was like God. It says that Jesus was with God and he was God because he is that eternal word through which all things that were created were created. Amen. In the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him and without him, nothing was made that was made. In him was life and the life was the light of men and the light shines in the darkness and the darkness did not comprehend it. Now, John in verse 31, the Baptist, not the apostle, says, I did not know him but that he should be revealed to Israel. Therefore, I came baptizing with water. In other words, John is saying, the only reason I knew who he was, the only reason that the knowledge of who he was came to me was because it was my job to identify him for the nation of Israel. And the way that I identified him was that when I was baptizing people, the spirit descended like a dove and rested and remained upon him. And a voice from heaven came saying, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. And that's what God the father had told me to be looking for because that was the sign that would distinguish the Messiah. That's why John was baptizing. He says, I did not know him, but that he should be revealed to Israel. Therefore, I came baptizing with water. And John bore witness saying, I saw the spirit descending from heaven like a dove. And he remained upon him. I did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, upon whom you see the spirit descending and remaining on him, that is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and testified that this is, is the son of God. Amen. John bore witness. And just as John bore witness, we are to bear witness that Jesus Christ was not just a good teacher, that Jesus Christ was not just a moral man, that Jesus Christ was not simply a great rabbi and a, a, a revolutionary in his day. No, we are to testify to the truth that Jesus Christ is the son of the living God. Amen? He is the only begotten of the father, the first of many brethren of whom we are, having been adopted by God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen? Amen. Now again, the next day, verse 35, John stood with two of his disciples. Now, one of them is named Andrew, and the other, it is implied, is the apostle John himself, who is writing this testimony. 
So again, the next day, John stood with two of his disciples and looking at Jesus, he, as, as he walked, he said, behold, the lamb of God. Now, first of all, that, that, that statement, lamb of God, I mean, we as Christians probably know what that means. Okay. But there is the possibility that there are among us today those that don't know what the phrase Lamb of God means. Or it's possible that there are those who are listening online sometime in the future who don't know what the phrase Lamb of God means. We can use Christianese and assume that people understand what we mean and thereby interfere with their understanding of the message that we're preaching. So let me take a moment, just a moment or two, to explain the term Lamb of God. First of all, how many already know what Lamb of God means? Okay, so there are at least a few that don't. The Lamb of God is a title that is applied to Jesus Christ because Jesus Christ would be the sacrifice for our sins. Without the shedding of blood, the Bible tells us, there is no remission. There's no remission of sin without the shedding of blood. In the Old Testament, when the children of Israel were slaves in the land of Egypt, and the Lord was bringing plagues against Egypt in order to convince Pharaoh to let the children of Israel go, the last of those plagues was that he sent forth the angel of death to slay the firstborn of every creature in the land of Egypt. Now, to set them apart the children of Israel were instructed to take a lamb without blemish and to take that lamb and to kill it and to roast it and to take of its blood and to put it over the doorposts of their home. And when the angel of death passed by, when he saw the blood, he would recognize that they were covered by the blood and they, he would, then he would pass over them. That's where the term Passover came from. He would pass over them. Well, that blood was a symbol of the sanctifying presence of God in that family. And because of the blood that was shed, they would be spared. Now, we can go back even further to come to understanding of what that means. In the day when Abraham and his son Isaac had climbed up the mountain and God had told Abraham to sacrifice his son, his only son, whom he loved... And Abraham, in obedience, was about to slay his son, the knife being raised as Isaac lay there on the altar. There was a ram that was caught in the thicket. And God provided for himself the sacrifice. So we see the symbol of God being the substitutionary sacrifice for us from the very beginnings of the scriptures. And so this idea of Jesus being the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world indicates that he came to die so that his blood would pay the price for your sin and for mine. Amen? So when John says to his disciples here in verse 36 of John chapter 1, behold the Lamb of God, they understood that John was saying that guy right there is the Messiah. He is the one who has come to save the people of Israel from their sins. Now the two disciples heard him speak and they did what you would do if you believed what was spoken. They followed Jesus. 
Now, I want to create a parallel for us this morning and, and, and show you very clearly the point that I'm trying to make with this. There was a proclamation, a preaching of the word. Behold the Lamb of God that taketh away the sins of the world. The evangelist, the prophet, whatever you want to call John, he pointed at Jesus and said, that's the one. The disciples heard the word. We know from Romans chapter 10 that faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. So having heard who Jesus was, the disciples followed him. Now, if you've come to Christ, that's exactly what has happened with you. You, through preaching, either on the radio or television or at a church somewhere, or through the personal witnessing of an individual, maybe a parent or a friend, or even a stranger passing out tracts on the street, or perhaps uh, you know, by just picking up the Bible and reading the written testimony that is there, you heard or took in the word of God. You heard who Jesus was. And having heard who Jesus was, if you believed that which you heard, then you made the decision, just as they did, to follow him. Amen? Does that make sense? You heard and you believed. And having believed, you responded appropriately and began to follow. Now, in the lives of these two men we are going to find an example of what we are to do once we begin to follow. Let's read on. The two disciples who heard him speak, and they followed Jesus, verse 38, then Jesus turned and seeing them following, said to them, what do you seek? And they said to him, Rabbi, which is to say when translated teacher, where are you staying? He said to them, Come and see. They came and saw where he was staying and remained with him that day. Now it was about the 10th hour. One of the two who heard John speak and followed him was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first found his own brother Simon and said to him, We have found the Messiah, which is translated the Christ, and he brought him to Jesus. Now, when Jesus looked at him, he said, you are Simon, the son of Jonah. You shall be called Cephas, which is translated a stone. The following day, Jesus wanted to go to Galilee and he found Philip and said to him, follow me. Now, Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter, and Philip found Nathanael and said to him, we have found him of whom Moses and the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. And Nathanael said to him, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Philip said to him, come and see. Just now, then Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him and he said to him, behold, an Israelite indeed in whom is no deceit. Nathanael said to him, how did you know me? And Jesus answered and said to him, before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Nathanael answered and said to him, Rabbi, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. And Jesus answered and said to him, because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? You will see greater things than these. Amen. You will see greater things than these. And he said to him, most assuredly, I say to you hereafter, you shall see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending upon 
the Son of Man. Amen? Amen. So, what do we have here? We have the story of a man named Andrew and his friend John, who having heard the testimony of John the Baptist, began to follow Jesus. And when Jesus said, what is it you're seeking? They said, well, where are you staying? And Jesus said to them, what? Come and see. Come and see. And they did. They came and they got to know him. And the next day, Andrew is like, man, this is so awesome. This is so good. I can't keep this to myself. I've got to find somebody to share this with. And so who do I know? Who, who do I know that will appreciate this amazing news? Who do I know that would benefit from this knowledge that I have gained? And the first person he thinks of is his own brother, Simon. And so he goes to Simon. And he's like, Simon, we have found him. We have found the Messiah. Listen, people, they had been looking for the Messiah for close to 4,000 years. This was big news. And Simon is like, okay, yeah, let's go see. So Simon had a very positive response. We don't see that he gave Andrew any resistance whatsoever. Andrew said, hey, we found him. And Simon, he came to see, right? Well, the next day, Jesus runs into this guy, Philip, who was from the same area. And he's like, hey, I'm going to Galilee. Why don't you come with me? And Philip followed him. Philip followed him. And then Philip goes and gets his friend, Nathaniel. But you see, Philip's friend, Nathaniel, was a little more resistant than Andrew's brother, Simon. He's like, dude, he's from Nazareth. What good ever comes out of that place? Nazareth was some backwater village and nobody important had ever come from there. In fact, the Messiah isn't even supposed to be born in, in Nazareth. He's supposed to be from Bethlehem. Of course, you know, Nathaniel didn't know that Jesus had immigrated to Nazareth. He hadn't lived there from the beginning. What good thing comes out of Nazareth? So he resisted. He resisted based on his intellects, and he resisted based upon his prejudice. And sometimes when you share the gospel with your friends or your family, they'll respond like Simon did. They'll just say, okay, man, that's cool. Yeah, you seem really excited. Let's go check this out. Other times, they'll respond like Nathaniel did, and they'll be skeptical. They'll be like, nah, man, I don't know. I, nothing good ever comes of that religious stuff. They'll respond because they have some intellectual problem with Christianity, or they may respond negatively because they have some prejudice against Christianity or religion. Did you realize? Now, you probably don't know about this sort of thing here in Texas, right? In Texas. You've heard the story of the golden payphone, haven't you? I shouldn't get sidetracked with it, but since I mentioned it, I'll say it. I'll say it. I'll tell you. Some of you have heard this, I know. There was this reporter who's working for Time Life Books, and he was doing a pictorial review of all the different churches in America. And he was at this big cathedral in San Francisco, and he's down at the front, and he sees up front this golden payphone. And so he says to the priest, the there, he says, what's, what's the deal with this golden payphone? I see it's like $10,000 a minute. Why is A, why is it golden? And B, why is it so expensive? And the priest tells him, he says, well, son, that's, that's a direct line to God. That, that's a direct line to heaven. You just put in your $10,000 and you can talk directly to God. And the guy's like, oh, that's interesting. Snaps a few pictures for the magazine and he moves on. A couple of weeks later, he's up in Washington State is an Episcopalian church, goes down and sees at the altar the same golden payphone, 
$10,000 a minute. He asks the guy there, he's like, hey, tell me, Reverend, what, what's the deal with this payphone? And the guy says, oh, well, that's a direct line to heaven, $10,000 a minute. You can talk directly to God in heaven. The guy's like, wow, that's amazing. Everywhere he goes, all over the country, he sees this same golden payphone, $10,000 a minute, until one day he crosses into this little town just south of the Red River. And there's the same golden payphone in this little Southern Baptist church, but instead of being $10,000 a minute, it's just 25 cents a call. And he looks at that and he's like confused. And so he goes to the pastor and he says, hey brother, what's the deal with this payphone? I've seen it everywhere around the country and everywhere I've gone, it's $10,000 a minute. How is it here? It's only 25 cents a call. And the pastor looks at me and says, well, brother, come on now. You're in Texas. From here, heaven's a local call. So, so maybe you haven't recognized the prejudice that is present against Christianity here in Texas because there is something about this state that still kind of has a, a conservative values atmosphere, right? But there are places in the country where you can't hardly hold the Bible up without offending somebody. How many of y'all heard what happened to Greg Laurie at the Harvest Festival? A couple of you. Most of you don't know about this. I'm going to share it with you. You know how Greg uh, did the Harvest Festival uh, at, uh, at, at Dallas Cowboy Stadium over there in Arlington, right? He's done it a couple times over the last few years. Filled the place up. Well, they were having another Harvest Festival called the SoCal Harvest Festival. It's in Southern California. They've been doing it for years, for decades they've been doing it. Well, there was a mall in that area and Greg had a billboard up that was promoting the Harvest Festival. It had his name, had the names of the bands that were there, and it showed a picture of him holding up his Bible. There was outrage over the fact that he was holding up a Bible in that billboard, and they were forced to take it down. There is prejudice against Christianity in our nation today. So some people, when they hear you talk about Jesus and they see how excited you are, will just because they see what a difference it's making for you, will respond positively and will go with you to learn more. Just like Simon did. But there are other people, like Nathaniel, who are going to be skeptical when you share the truth about Christ with them. They're not going to want to believe either because maybe they've been burned by religion in the past and they're not willing to give it a fair hearing. Or maybe they have some intellectual problem with it. Nothing good ever comes from Nazareth. Or maybe they're just prejudiced against religion in general and against Christianity in particular. So how do you respond to them? You respond the same way that Philip responded to Nathaniel. You say, hey, come and see. Just come and see. Check it out. You don't believe you got nothing to be afraid of. Come and see. Come and learn a little bit about Jesus and then decide for yourself rather than allowing the media or the public or other people to decide for you. Just come and see. It's an invitation, isn't it? It's an invitation that is hard to refuse on rational grounds because what have you got to be afraid of? What do you have to fear? Just come and see. Amen? Now, Peter did come and see. But Peter did not begin to follow Christ immediately. 
Peter needed a little more time and needed a little more ministry. You see, in this, we need to recognize that it is our place to make an introduction. It is our place to introduce the unbeliever to Jesus. It is not our place, nor is it within the realm of our ability to save them. We make the introduction, Jesus does the convincing. Amen? We tell them about Jesus, but it's the work of the Holy Spirit in their heart that will cause them to believe or to disbelieve. Turn with me, if you will, to, I need to find my spot here, Luke chapter 5. Now, Peter has already met Jesus because Andrew introduced them, right? That's why we call this evangelistic outreach that we're doing Operation Andrew, by the way, because you're doing just like Andrew did. You're praying for your friends and your family, and then you're inviting them to come and have the opportunity to know Christ. That's what Operation Andrew is about. That's where it gets its name, by following Andrew's example and going and finding our friend or our brother or that person that we know who needs Christ in their life, right? And Peter had come to get to know Jesus a little bit, but, but he hadn't yet really committed himself to following Jesus. And we, we find this story in Luke chapter 5 as we see the development of his relationship with Christ come to a decision point in his life. In chapter 5 of Luke verse 1, it says, So it was, as the multitude pressed about him to hear the word of God, speaking of Jesus preaching, that, that he stood by the lake of Gennesaret, and, and he saw two boats standing by the lake, but the fishermen had, had, gone, had drawn them from the water, and, and they were, excuse me, the two boats were standing by the lake, but the fishermen had gone from them and were washing their nets. And then he, he got into one of the boats, which was Simon's, and asked him to put a, out a little bit from land. So Simon and Jesus, they'd already met previously, and Jesus is, is, is there, he's preaching on the seashore, and, and there's so many people that want to hear what Jesus has to say that they're, they're pressing in on him. And I don't know if you've ever tried to, 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 to speak before a large crowd. It, it's one thing when y'all are sitting in those pews in a nice and orderly way, but, but when people start to press in on you, it's, it's hard to communicate with everybody, right? And, and so they're pressing in, but Jesus, he sees these two boats and he thinks to himself, hey, this would be a good opportunity to be able to maybe have a, a place from which to speak. And, and so he got into the, one of the boats, which was Simon's, and, and he had met Simon before. And he asked him to put out a little bit from the land and, and he sat down and he taught the multitudes from the boat. So he used Peter's boat as a pulpit, right? And when he had stopped speaking, he said to Simon, launch into the deep and let down your nets for a catch. Now, Jesus is not a fisherman. Jesus was a carpenter who has now become a rabbi or a teacher, an itinerant preacher, if you will. What's he know about fishing, right? 
And Peter's response acknowledges that lack of knowledge. He says to him, Master, we, we've, we've toiled all night and caught nothing. And nevertheless, at your word, I will let down the net. In other words, he's like, you know what? Sure. I, 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 he's, I'll humor him, right? Sure, we'll, we'll, we'll do it. Now, when he had done this, they caught a great number of fish and their net was breaking. So they signaled to their partners in the other boat to come and help them. And they came and filled both boats so that they began to sink. Now, when Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees saying, depart from me for I am a sinful man, O Lord. And he and all who were with him were astonished at the catch of fish, what they had just taken. And so also were James and John, the sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. And Jesus said to Simon, do not be afraid. From now on, you will catch men. So when they had brought their boats to land, they forsook all and followed him. You see, Andrew brought Simon to Jesus, but it was Jesus who changed Simon's life. It wasn't until Simon recognized the power and the authority that Jesus had that he was willing to confess his sins to him, forsake everything, and begin to follow him. Amen? Now, Peter, this man who met Jesus through the ministry of his brother, Andrew, this man who was overcome with awe and wonder as Jesus filled his nets with fish when he had fished all night and caught none on his own. This Peter who fell at the feet of Jesus and said, depart from me for I am a sinful man. This Peter to whom Jesus said, you used to catch fish, but now you're gonna catch men. Don't be afraid. I've got a job for you to do. This Peter who forsake all, who forsook all, excuse me, this Peter who forsook all to follow Jesus would become the great preacher on the day of Pentecost through whose lips the Holy Spirit spoke and through whose preaching the Holy Spirit moved to the extent that thousands of people responded to the message of the gospel. It was this Peter who said, repent and be baptized and be filled with the Holy Spirit. It was this Peter who led the early church into the lights of God's love, grace, and glory. Amen? And it was this same Peter who would go on to write the words that we find in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 15. Turn there with me, if you will. 1 Peter chapter 3. <clears throat> In 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 15, Peter writes, Sanctify the Lord God in your hearts. 
and always be ready to give a defense to everyone who asks you a reason for the hope that is in you with meekness and fear. Amen? I like the way the ESV says this just a little bit better. So let me read to you from the English Standard Version. It says, In your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy. Always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. What is the hope that is in you? The hope that is in you is this, that through the blood of Jesus Christ, your sins have been forgiven. And that because God raised Christ up from the dead, in him you also have the hope of eternal life. Amen? So what is the hope that is in you? The hope that is in you is that, the, that your sins are forgiven and that you've received the gift of eternal life through Jesus Christ your Lord who died and rose again from the grave. Your hope is in the truth of the gospel and in a future reunion with God in heaven. Amen? So when bad things happen in life, when difficulties come upon us, when all the world is panicked because of the swine flu, or when everyone around you is certain that North Korea is going to drop a bomb on Hawaii, or when fill in the blank, when the world is panicked and freaking out because the stock market is taking a plunge and they don't know why, when the world is worried about all kinds of various and sundry things and you have peace in your heart, and you trust in the Lord with all your heart. And you lean not on your own understanding, but in all your ways acknowledge him because you know that he's going to direct your paths. When you delight yourself in the Lord and know that he's going to give you the desires of your heart, when you are anxious over nothing, but in all things through prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, make your requests known unto the Lord. And as a result, he's guarding your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. When you have peace, when all around you, people are going crazy and people look at you and they say, what's the deal? Why aren't you worried about the fact that they just told us we're about to be laid off? How is it that you're not freaking out? You have a car payment. You have electricity to pay. You have a mortgage. You have bills. How is it you're not freaked out like I'm freaked out? What's different about you? There's nothing different about me except the fact that I know that I don't belong to myself. I belong to somebody else. I belong to Jesus. And because I belong to Jesus, I know that I'm his to take care of. And he's going to take care of me. Uh, well, will he take care of me? I don't know. Do you belong to him? <laughs> you ain't going to feed somebody else's puppy, right? <laughs> you can belong to him. You want me to tell you how to have the same kind of peace I have? Well, let's go talk. Or I'll tell you what, why don't you come to church with me this Sunday? We'll go out to lunch afterwards. We'll talk about the pastor's sermon. We'll see what you think about it then. Maybe you'll find some of that same peace that I've got. You see, you need to be ready to give a defense for the hope that lies within you. But in order for you to give a defense for the hope that lies within you, people need to be able to see the hope that lies within you. If they can't see the hope that lies within you, they're not going to ask you about that hope and you won't have an opportunity to give a defense. So when life goes crazy... You stay calm. You press on. You know that the one who gave his son for you will not withhold any good thing from you, but that he's got you, right? God has got your situation under control, even when you don't think you do. 
In your hearts, the ESV says, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet, do it with gentleness and respect. That's how the ESV puts it. When we share the gospel with people, we need to speak the truth in love. We don't need to be offensive. The exclusivity of the gospel is offensive enough. Well, you're a sinner and you're going to go to hell unless you repent of your sins and turn to God for forgiveness in Jesus Christ. Love ya. <laughs> the message alone is offensive. Well, can't I just be sincere and believe anything? Well, you can sincerely believe that up is down and you're still going to end up at the bottom of the staircase, not at the top of it, right? Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father except through me. Listen, I, I don't know if you recognize this or not, but that is offensive the cross upon which Jesus Christ was crucified we have made into a gold or silver or pewter piece of jewelry that we wear around our necks but it was a means of execution we don't recognize it we're walking around with a bunch of little electric chairs hanging down from our ears and our chains that's how they put people to death and not just people, but bad people, criminals, murderers, political dissidents. It was a means of public shaming and execution. And our Savior hung upon one of those until he was dead. And you know, in all of our nice little artworks, they put the little loincloth on him. Uh-uh. They stripped him naked and hung him from that cross as he was beaten and bleeding and he tolerated all of that for you. That was the price that had to be paid for your sin and for mine. Jesus, in his death upon the cross, fulfilled the righteous requirement of the law so that you and I could receive mercy from God. God demonstrated his love for us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. He made him who knew no sin to become sin for us that we in him might become the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. Amen? That is what the gospel teaches. And many people will be offended by that. So we don't need to add to the offense of the gospel by being offensive ourselves. So when we share the gospel with people, let's make sure that we do it with gentleness and with respect. When people have questions, don't criticize them for their questions, but do the best you can to honestly answer their questions. And if you don't know the answer to their questions, then say, you know what? I don't know the answer to that question. Why don't we find out together this Sunday? Let's go to church and ask my pastor. He might know. If they don't want to, then their real problem isn't the question. It's something else that they're using the question as an excuse to keep from having to deal with. 
Now, Peter's words here in 1 Peter 3, chapter 15, or chapter 3, 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 15, Peter's words here are a responsive way of sharing the gospel. People come to you, they ask about the hope that is within you, and you give them an answer. You, you give them a response. You explain it to them, right? With gentleness and respect. If that were the sum total of everything that we had to do, then we wouldn't find other verses like these. In Ephesians chapter two, and you don't have to turn here. We're running a little short on time. I don't want to keep you long this morning. So you can write these down and read them later if you'd like. Ephesians chapter two, verse 10. Right after the passage there in verses eight and nine that says that we are saved by grace and that through faith, not of ourselves, but it's the gift of God, not by works so that no one may boast, right? Right after that, we're told in verse 10 that we are God's handiwork. In other words, God has created us and formed us and made us. And he created us in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. That means that you are not saved by your works, but having been saved, God has a job for you to do. Amen? And he prepared it. He set it all up in advance for you to do it. Well, in Mark chapter 16, verse 15, Jesus told the disciples what that job was. He told them, go into all the world and preach the gospel to all creation. That's our job. Now, we don't all have the same function in the fulfillment of that job, but it is still all our job. We are to work together to preach the gospel to all the world, to all creation. Now, that may seem a little difficult for some of us. That may seem a little challenging. It may seem even a little scary, perhaps. But it is what we are called to do. We are called by God, commissioned by Jesus himself to preach the gospel in all the world and to all creation. That's why it's called the Great Commission. It is our primary purpose as the church is to proclaim the gospel, to preach the gospel and to make disciples of all nations. That's what we are to be doing until his return. Now, some people might say, well, you know, it's, it's kind of hard for me to do that. I have a difficult time speaking to people. I, I, I don't know how to talk to people. It's really hard. Really? I bet every single one of you knows how to order a number two at the drive-thru. <laughs> you can talk to people well enough to feed your face. And some of you are really good at even the more complicated things. Let me tell you, the gospel message is much simpler than going through the drive-thru and ordering a Vente triple shot with soy and chai. And and you know how to do that. You know how to get your drink right at Starbucks. And if you don't, talk to any number of people in this congregation. I I think Starbucks is the largest employer of people in this place. You know how to communicate that. You say, well, that's important. I got to get my coffee. I I, got to get my lunch. 
Well, isn't the gospel more important than your coffee? Isn't the gospel more important than your lunch? You can talk to people about what you want. So maybe what you need is to want people to know Jesus. Maybe you need to want people to know Jesus as much as you want your lunch. Maybe you need to want people to know Jesus as much as you want to get that drink order right at the drive-thru. But the sad thing is, we don't. I'm going to tell a story. And I'm not going to say any names because I don't want to embarrass anybody. But somebody told me this. And I thought, you know what? That's the work of God in your life. Someone once told me that they were going through their monthly budget and they came to the realization that they were spending more on dog food than they were for the kingdom of God. And having come to that realization, they made a change. They repented. They changed their attitude. They changed their actions because they wanted to see the kingdom of God be furthered on this earth. That's what we pray, right? Thy kingdom come, thy will be done. But how can I say thy kingdom come and thy will be done if I invest more in Alpo than I do in the kingdom? Right? How much does the salvation of your friends, family, and neighbors matter to you? Does it matter enough for you to write their names on a card? Does it matter enough for you to pray for them every day? Does it matter enough for you to go out on a limb and say to them, you know, listen, we're, we're having this thing at church on Sunday. It's kind of a Christmas thing. Do you think you might want to go maybe? Does it matter enough? Listen, friends, is there not a cause? Didn't Jesus save you from your sins and give you the gift of eternal life? Or have you forgotten what he did in order to make that possible? God loves you. And because of that, he saved your soul. But he doesn't love your friends, family, or neighbors any less than he loved you. But you are the one who has been commissioned by him to introduce them to him. And if you won't, then who will? In Matthew chapter 10, actually, I'm sorry, Matthew chapter 9, verse 35, we read that Jesus went all about the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the gospel of the kingdom, and healing every sickness and every disease among the people. But when he saw the multitudes, he was moved with compassion for them because they were weary and scattered like sheep having no shepherd. If that doesn't describe people today, I don't know what does. And then he said to his disciples, the harvest truly is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Now, here's an interesting thing. First, he tells them to pray for it. And then he calls them to be the answer to their own prayer. He tells them, pray that the Lord of the harvest will send out workers into the harvest. And then in verse one of chapter 10, it says that he called his 12 disciples to him and he gave them power over unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal all kinds of sickness and all kinds of disease. Now the names of the 12 apostles were these. First, Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew, his brother. Guess who came first on that list? 
Simon. But guess why Simon was on that list? Because Andrew invited him. Amen? So Simon and Andrew, his brother, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, they were the two guys in the other boat that morning. Philip and Bartholomew, guess who Bartholomew is? It's another name for Nathaniel. Guess who invited Nathaniel? Philip did. Thomas and Matthew, the tax collector, James, the son of Alphaeus, and Lebius, whose surname was Thaddeus, Simon the Canaanite, and Judas Iscariot, who also betrayed him. Now these 12, Jesus sent out and commanded them, saying, do not go into the way of the Gentiles and do not enter into a city of the Samaritans. He was sending them specifically to the house of Israel at this point. And he said, but go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And as you go, preach, saying the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Heal the sick, cleanse the leper, raise the dead, cast out demons. Freely you have received, freely give. Listen, nobody charged you a penny for the gospel. And don't you make it cost anybody else either. We have received freely the grace of God, so let's freely and abundantly and generously give the grace of God to those who need to hear it. Moving on to verse 32 of this same chapter, there's something that Jesus said that we need to pay close attention to. He said, therefore... Whoever confesses me before men, him I will also confess before my Father is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, him I will also deny before my Father who is in heaven. Not everyone is going to receive your testimony. There are those that when you share Christ with them, it may cause even a division in your relationship with that person. They may decide that they don't want you around them anymore or that they don't want you around their children anymore or that they don't want to associate with you anymore. There are some people having been addicted to drugs or alcohol or a lifestyle of darkness who come to Christ, are set free from those sins, go back to their family to share the truth of what God has done and have their family say, I liked you better as an addict. Because the gospel shines a light into the darkness of men's hearts that makes them more uncomfortable than they can bear until they come to repentance. Well, what did Jesus have to say about that? Verse 34, he said, do not think that I came to bring peace on earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to set a man against his father, a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law, and a man's enemies will be those of his own household. He who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And he who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And he who does not take up his cross and follow after me is not worthy of me. He who finds his life will lose it, and he who loses his life for my sake will find it. Amen? Jesus ain't playing. He means every word that he has said here. There is a price to be paid for proclaiming the gospel. And sometimes it is the offense that is brought as a result of it and the rejection that we experience. But you know what Paul had to say about that? In Romans chapter 1, verse 16, Paul wrote, I am not ashamed of the gospel. 
because it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes. Amen? Listen, friends, I am not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ, and my prayer this morning is that you would not be ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ either. There's no way they're going to hear it unless we speak it, and we need to speak it so that they can experience the gift of salvation. Amen? Let's not hoard that gift and keep it to ourselves. Freely we've received, freely let's give. But we need a boldness to speak the truth, even in dark places. But we also must remember to do it with gentleness and with respect. Amen? First Corinth, excuse me, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 14 and 15, Paul puts it this way. He says, the love of Christ compels us. In other words, my love for God And God's love for people compels and motivates me to do this. The love of Christ compels us because we judge thus, that if one died for all, then all died. And he died for all, that those who live should live no longer for themselves, but for him who died for them and rose again. Listen, Christian, if you are living for yourself, then you are not following Christ. Because those for whom he died are to recognize that they died with him and that the life that they now live is not theirs, but his. Your life is not your own, but you were bought for a price. And that price was the precious blood of Jesus Christ. And having come to this realization, you now recognize, Christian, that you no longer live for yourself, but you live for Jesus. And if you truly live for Jesus, then you are to answer the call that Jesus has placed upon your life. And Paul explains what that call is in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, a few verses later. He says in verse 20 and 21, now then, we, he doesn't say I, he says we, that's me, that's you, that's Paul, that's the people he was writing to in Corinth, that's all of us who believe we are ambassadors for Christ. We're ambassadors for Christ. Do you know an ambassador doesn't say what the ambassador wants to say? The ambassador says what the ambassador has been told to say by the government that the ambassador represents, amen? So in other words, we don't speak our own words. We speak the words of God as he instructs us. Now then, we are ambassadors for Christ as though God were pleading through us. I want you to recognize the heart of a God who loves you in that verse. God, almighty God, the holy and righteous and all-powerful God, the God who spoke the universe into existence, the God who formed Adam from the dust of the earth, the God who took from Adam a rib and shaped it into a woman whom he then gave to him, the God who commanded them to be fruitful and multiply that they might fill the earth, the God who washed away the world in the flood, preserving only Noah and his family and gave the earth a fresh start in that moment, the God who loved you so much that he demonstrated that love by sending his son to die for you, that God 
the omniscient, omnipresent, omnipotent God, the ruler of all the universe and all of the earth, he is pleading. Can you imagine that? He is pleading, he is begging. And and Paul says, we are ambassadors for Christ as though God were pleading through us. We implore you. Paul is saying, listen, I'm begging you. On behalf of Christ, I'm begging you, be reconciled to God. That's our message. That's what we're trying to communicate to people, to a lost world that is in desperate need of Jesus. We're just trying to say, listen, be reconciled to God. You can be reconciled to God. If you are here this morning and Jesus Christ is not your Lord and Savior, listen to me right now. You can be reconciled to God. You can have peace with God this morning through Jesus Christ. All you have to do is believe and receive. Amen? And I'll tell you how to do that in just a moment in Romans chapter 10. Now then, we are ambassadors for Christ as though God were pleading through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God for he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in him. One last time, I'll ask you to turn to Romans chapter 10. Very simply, here's the gospel. If you are not a Christian this morning, if you have not received Christ as your Lord and Savior, if you've not received the forgiveness of your sin, if you're still living at a state where you are an enemy of God and you have not submitted yourself to him, you might think you're a good person. By comparison, you may be a great person, but are you a perfect person? Have you lived a sinless life? No, none of us have. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We all need to be saved. And until we have been, we're living as enemies of God. But God wants you to lay down your weapons and to receive his love and his embrace in Christ Jesus. He wants you to be forgiven for your sins. He wants you to be set free from sin and death and to receive the hope of eternal life. That's what he wants for you. He wants to bless you. He wants to pour his blessings out upon you. But until you're at peace with him, he can't do that. Until you belong to him, that hope and that peace cannot be yours. We cannot have the peace of God until we're at peace with God. So how do I become at peace with God? How do I receive the gift of this salvation? Paul tells us in Romans chapter 10. In verse eight, speaking of faith, he says, what does it say? The word is near you, in your mouths and in your heart. That is the word of faith which we preach. That if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Doesn't say you might be, doesn't say you could be. It says you will be. If you believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus, belief and confession If you do these two things, you will be saved. Why? Well, for with the heart, one believes unto righteousness. And with confession and with the mouth, confession is made unto salvation. For the scripture says, whoever believes on him, that is Jesus, will not be put to shame. 
For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord over all is rich to all who call upon him. For whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Amen? Have you called upon the name of the Lord this morning? Have you called upon the name of the Lord? Is he your savior? Do you realize that when you share the gospel with people, this is as simple as it gets? Just ask them, listen, man, do you want to be at peace with God? Because God wants to be at peace with you. God wants to forgive you for your sins. God wants to pour his blessings out upon your life and give you the gift of eternal life. And all you've got to do is confess that Jesus Christ is your Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. Because if you believe these things, and if you confess these things, if you call upon his name, you will be saved. Amen? In a moment, I'm going to invite you to do that if you haven't already. But for now, I want us to read the rest of this passage for those who believe. Verse 14 says, How then shall they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how shall they believe in him of whom they have not heard? And you say, well, wait a minute. Everybody's heard. No, they haven't. Listen, I teach in the public high school system and there are occasions where I come across a piece of literature that makes reference to the Bible. Um, Beowulf, for instance, makes reference to Cain and Abel. And there are other passages from other texts that make reference to other portions of scripture. There's even a portion where we teach parables and we teach the parable of the Good Samaritan in some instances. And when I ask my students, high school students, how many of you know who Cain and Abel were? Out of a group of 12, one, maybe two raised their hand. People assume that their friends, family, and neighbors know the gospel and simply have chosen not to receive it. But I'm here to tell you, we live in a post-Christian culture. There may be a church on every corner. That doesn't mean people walk into them. There may be a Christian radio station at every point on the dial. That doesn't mean that people stop at them. There may be Bible teachings galore available on YouTube. That doesn't mean everybody downloads them. There are so many choices, so many options, so many different things in our society today that distract and dissuade people from truly looking into the gospel. Your friends and your family don't know the truth. Maybe some of them do, but how will you know unless you try to share it with them? How can they believe unless they've heard? And how shall they hear without a preacher? And how shall they preach unless they are sent? Well, guess what? You are being sent. Right now, this morning, you are commissioned to proclaim the gospel to anyone who will listen and even to a few who won't. Let the word of God dwell in you richly so that when life squeezes you, what comes out is the word of God. How shall they preach unless they are sent as it is written? How beautiful are the feet of those who preach the gospel of peace, who bring glad tidings of good things. Amen? That is your job, to bring glad tidings of good things. I'll end with one more story. Many years ago, I was in a restaurant and 
I was going up to the counter to check out, to pay my tab. And behind the counter, there was a plaque. And on that plaque, there was a picture of a cup and some grapes implying, you know, wine. And and there were the words, the king requests your attendance at the wedding feast of his son. And I looked at that and I thought, wow, I have been invited to a party, to the best party that anybody is ever going to throw. And I have RSVP'd. Now, after I saw that, it it stirred something up in me. And for a while, I would go around and I was a Chick-fil-A manager at the time in California. And uh, I was running a store for just about two months while they closed it down. They just... They, they couldn't put a regular operator in there because they were getting ready to close it, but they needed somebody to run it, so they hired me to do that. And uh, I had been a college student previously, a member of InterVarsity Christian Fellowship, you know, and so I knew a bunch of people from my Bible studies, and I needed employees, so I hired a bunch of people that were from my Bible studies, and so we were just, we were like a bunch of Christians just running this Chick-fil-A in the mall, and we had some people who weren't, and some people who were. And my assistant manager, Trish, actually at the time she was just one of my crew members, we used, to, we used to do what we'd call tag team witnessing. She'd be witnessing to somebody downstairs while they were working register together because there was a reason they were closing that store. We weren't doing very much business. And so they would be talking and sharing and she'd be sharing the gospel with them. And then they'd come upstairs where they were going to take their break, where I'd be doing paperwork and they'd sit down to take their break and I'd start to share the gospel with them. And so we called it, tag team witnessing, right? And one day there was this one young lady who was working for us and and she had a bit of a reputation for being a bit of a party animal. And it occurred to me, I bet you she'd like an invitation. And so I said to her, I said, are you going to the party? She's like, what party? I said, well, there's this big party, man. It's it's, it's awesome. There's going to be all kinds of food and there's going to be all kinds of just, it's going to be awesome. And I started just telling her all about this great party I was going to. I said, didn't you get your invitation? She's like, no, no, I didn't. I'm like, well, let me share the invitation with you. And I was able to share that invitation with her. And she kind of just rolled her eyes. She's like, oh man, that's cheesy. (laughs) But over the next week, She'd be downstairs and Trish would say, hey, are you going to the party? And she'd be like, "Ah, you know what? By the end of the week, she RSVP'd. It was an awesome time. I remember being upstairs one day and one of my team members comes running up the stairs. Ken, Ken, I need you down here real quick. Why? What's going on? Well, our delivery driver, we've been witnessing to him while we were unloading the truck and he wants to receive the Lord. Can you come pray with him? I'm like, yeah, sure, let's go. I used to, when I worked at the Chick-fil-A in, in Mesilla Valley, I would, uh, I would sit down and interview somebody and they would obviously be a Christian who it seemed like would be a good worker and I would hire them. And then there'd be somebody else who was obviously not a Christian, but they still seemed like they would be a good worker. So I would hire them. And then I would schedule them together just to see what would happen. <laughs> Is Kelly here? Ah, oh, there you are. <laughs> Living proof. I remember there was one time we had this friend. He was a, sermon's over, by the way. I'm just talking now, right? 
So um, I had this friend. He wasn't really my friend, but he, he, was, he became a friend. This guy named Abel. And uh, he, he was one of my crew leaders. I was working in New Mexico. And, and, uh, and Abel was a great kid, very ambitious. And uh, he, uh, he prayed with me to receive the Lord one day. And I remember afterwards, I mentioned it to Kelly. I'm like, hey, Kelly, Abel received the Lord. And she says, oh, that's nifty. <laughs> nifty, that was actually the word she used, nifty. <laughs> it was a long time ago. A month or two later, she'd been scheduled to work with Heather, uh, not the Heather you know, different Heather, who was a very involved young lady in her youth group and a very outspoken evangelist. And I walked in to Chick-fil-A one night late to check on the store. They should have been closed and gone a long time ago, but they were hanging around, still on the clock, by the way, in the kitchen. And I walked in, and they're standing in a little circle. And Kelly's got like tears running down her face. I'm telling stories here. She's got tears running down her face. And Heather turns to me and she says, hey, Kelly just received the Lord. And I looked at her and said, nifty. (laughs) The point that I'm trying to make is this. When you have sharing the gospel with unbelievers as a priority in your mind, when you're constantly thinking of ways to share it, when you're constantly praying that God would give you opportunities to share it, guess what God does? He gives you those opportunities and he brings the fruit, okay? Abel went to college, joined ROTC, became a lieutenant in the Air Force. And one day he was out riding his motorcycle with some friends, took a corner swung wide into the other lane and was killed by an oncoming car. But today, he beholds the face of our Lord and Savior. Because somebody shared the gospel with him. There are friends and family, neighbors and coworkers that you know that one day are gonna stand before the Lord to give an account for their life. On that day, will they be able to say that they know him or will they be a stranger standing before the king? On that day, will they be facing an eternity in heaven with the Lord or will they be facing an eternity separated from him in hell? And on that day when they stand before him, do you want to know that you shared the gospel and gave them a chance to know him? That is your responsibility and mine to give them that choice. What they do with it, that's up to them. But we have been given a command by our king to tell them the truth that they need to hear. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for saving us. Lord, we thank you for saving us. We thank you for shedding your blood for us. And we ask your forgiveness. 
for having been unfaithful stewards of the testimony that has been entrusted to us. Help us to be unfaithful no longer. But make the propagation of the gospel message, the sharing of the gospel message, the priority in our lives. Give us opportunities. Give us creativity. Open doors for us to speak your truth into the lives of those who need to hear it and bring fruit for your kingdom. Lord, the harvest is plentiful. The the fields are white for the harvest. Lord, we pray that the Lord of the harvest would send workers into his field. Lord, we pray, here we are, Lord. Send us. Give us the opportunity, Lord, and help us to be faithful to walk through every door you open. And as every Christian prays, if there's anyone here today who would say, you know what, I... I don't know where I stand with the Lord. I I don't know whether or not my sins are forgiven or maybe you know for a fact that they're not. Listen, today is the day of salvation. I can't preach a message like this and not give an invitation. Listen, if you're here this morning and you've never confessed Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, if you've never called upon his name for salvation, now is the time, today is the day. God has made an appointment with you and you're here to keep it. And this is an appointment for salvation. As Paul said, I implore you, I beseech you on behalf of God and Jesus Christ, please, please, please do not leave this place this morning. Do not log off of this website if you're listening later on without having gotten things right with God. Be reconciled to God this morning. How do I do that? You say, well, you confess with your mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord and you believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead. You call upon the name of Jesus Christ and the Bible says you will be saved. So that's what you need to do. If that's what you want to do this morning, would you just lift your hands to the Lord and just lift your hand up so that we can pray with you and say, I confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And I believe in my heart that God has raised him from the dead. I want to call upon his name right now so that I can be saved. If you're here this morning and you've never done that, I'm begging you, please do it now. If you're listening online and you've never done that, I'm begging you, please do it now. Heavenly Father, we love you. And we thank you that you loved us so much that you sent your son Jesus to die for our sins. We confess that Jesus Christ is Lord because we're not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ because it's the power of God and to salvation to those who believe. And Lord, we do believe in our hearts that Jesus who died for our sins was buried on the third day, rose again from the grave and now sits at the right hand of the Father and makes intercession daily for us. Lord, we thank you for loving us. And we thank you, Lord, for entrusting us with this gospel. Make us faithful ambassadors for Jesus Christ, in whose name we now pray, amen.